Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I'm serving a church in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, location undisclosed. <laughs> Actually, it's in Vancouver, Washington, <laughs> suburb of Portland. And uh, I'm, I'm a writer. Uh, I write both fiction and nonfiction. I've been a professor of philosophy. I've even done some other things. I've been a real estate investor and a, and a, a building contractor. But anyway, enough about me. Why don't we run around the horn, as they say in baseball, and uh, introduce uh, the other guys or have the other guys introduce themselves. So, Tom, tell us about yourself. Uh, Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, a few other things um, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and uh, other places. And Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University. That means I'm retired from that. Um, I'm also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I'm working at Reflections Ministries with Ken Boa. Excellent. Excellent. Great stuff. Hey, before we jump into the subject of the day, I want to take an opportunity or take a moment to talk a little bit about the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and the big conference coming up in Nashville. I think this show will be out just maybe a, a week or two before, or maybe maybe a little more, maybe three weeks or so before that big event. If you've been on the fence uh, with regard to attending that event, uh, let me uh, just say, uh, jump off the fence on the right side of history, <laughs> on the right side of the fence, which is uh, uh, going. You know, it'd be great to see you there. We're going to be uh, actually doing a live show. Uh, at the conference. There are going to be some great speakers. Of course, Doug Wilson will be there and Vody Bakken will be there. Doug Tanapel will be there and, uh, and a lot of other people worthwhile, uh, you know, in terms of listening to them and learning from them. So anyway, with that in mind, if you uh, want to learn more about the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in the Nashville area, uh, you can go to their website, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network website and uh, learn about it there. Anyway, that's enough of that. So today, let's jump into the subject of the day, and it's my day. It's my day to, uh, to pick uh, the theme and uh, introduce what we're talking about. Um, let me see, it, it, the, the, I, I, I want to react to something that I saw the uh, Intercollegiate Studies Institute uh, published a number of years ago, back in 2010 by uh, Larry Arnhart. Um, and uh, it struck me. It struck me uh, as unusual because, generally speaking, I find myself agreeing with the stuff that I see ISI, you know, publishing. Uh, but here I found myself uh, challenged, uh, and uh, and uh, in the sense that, you know, there was there was a, an article that I found myself at a at a very fundamental level disagreeing with. Now I'm not saying they shouldn't have published it. That's not my point. It's just that. Uh, the uh, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, generally speaking, uh, publishes uh, articles that are very much in, in sort of harmony with the, you know, sort of the uh, uh, you know, Christendom and the Judeo-Christian tradition in the West. And uh, this particular article uh, was really uh, not in sort of uh, keeping with their, their, you know, their, their history of publishing. And the, and the title of the article is Darwinian conservatism versus metaphysical conservatism. And we'll put a link to the article in the show notes. Um, Larry Arnhart uh, is a professor or was a professor of political science at North uh, Northern Illinois University. He's an emeritus, uh, but he was an emeritus back in 2010. And I don't know much about him ap apart from what I, uh, you know, uh, just read in terms of his byline and this article. Um, when I first saw the article, uh, because it was published by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, I thought it was going to be sort of a takedown of Darwinian conservatism and a vindication of metaphysical conservatism. But how wrong I was. <laughs> it's actually the reverse. This is the defense. How of disappointed. Darwinian. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> this is a defense of Darwinian conservatism. Now, now the, for the, the, you know, the, the, the grumblers out there in podcast land, this might uh, be just a, a, a non sequitur Darwinian conservatism, you know, in terms of their own, you know, the, the personal experience of a lot of people, uh, people who have embraced Darwin uh, often are on the political left. 
And uh, so this might se- just, just seem odd that a person who is a Darwinist uh, could be a conservative. But there actually is a fairly lively uh, and broad-based uh, group of people uh, who identify themselves as you know, people who are on board with Darwin and they're conservative and they actually think that Dar- Darwin's think or, or theories uh, actually are, are in, you know, kind of can be used to actually support a conservative political and social agenda. And uh, so what I want to do is I want to look at the arguments and I want to say before we get into any of the arguments, this particular subject uh, is often addressed from the standpoint of uh, you know the, the the science or the, or the disputed science, uh, people often talk about you know uh, you know the age of the Earth or try they try to think about um, you know whether or not particular fossils actually are uh, you know indicate what people say they indicate and stuff like that. Just so you folks out there in podcast land uh, uh, understand what we're up to, we're not going to go to any of those places. If you want. Answers in Genesis. You can go to Answers in Genesis. <laughs> we're not going to we're not going to get into that kind of conversation. We're more interested in the philosophy, and we're we're interested in in some of the connections that uh, Larry Arnhardt is making, uh, and some of his critiques of metaphysical conservatism, and why we think that uh, he's not really uh, he's not really being fair to metaphysical conservatism or, rep- or, or representing it well. Uh, you know, even when you disagree with something, you you really ought to make sure that you do a good job of representing what you disagree with, and and we don't think he did. Um, so anyway, uh, that's that's the nature of the conversation. Now, now you guys had a chance to read a little bit um, on you know from this uh, from this article or read a little bit of it. Uh, we're not going to go into the very you know last section where he talks about the subject of slavery. He's using that, I think, to sort of you know. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, grind his axes or whatever. <laughs> uh, we don't, we don't need to go there. There's plenty to, to react to, bef- you know, before you, you get to that. But you've, since you've had a chance to read it, uh, do you have any quick thoughts based on what you did read? Maybe, you know, criticisms or even things that you think he, he did well. Glenn, you want to start? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I just found a, a certain number of his statements seem to be incoherent. Um, you know, so uh, an example is he talks about natural teleology. I don't know how you have natural teleology without design or uh, some sort of intended trajectory. I, I just don't, I don't see how you get there right. um, from Darwinism. Yeah, I, I, uh, he, yeah, I, he made a couple of interesting points about people being, for example, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that evolutionary perspectives can help with in conservatism is the idea that people are are inherently imperfect. Right. Um, you know, so that that's a good point. But on the other hand, since we're always in flux and mutating into something different, that can undermine the whole point. I mean, so there were a number of things like that that just struck me as being, like I said, incoherent. I'm not sure how they had how they hang together in his mind. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to read I'm going to read a, a statement or two in a minute after Tom's had a chance to react to kind of help people understand kind of the argument that that Darwinian conservatives make. But but those are good points. Good, Tom. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, following Glenn, just even the notion of of measuring something as perfect and imperfect, um, <laughs> based on what? <laughs> I mean, right. um, if you're just if you're just talking about in terms of of of, of something, I mean, are we talking morally here? Um, that's a whole different set of things than talking about the functions of our, our material natures, <laughs> right? Whether they're functioning in terms of what would be projected better or not, based on environment and and, you know, sustaining. But um, I think a point just up front for a lot uh, of people is, as Chris and you had mentioned in, in some previous conversations about this, a lot of non sequiturs. And I think even the title itself is kind of one of those, because what it here, what, it, what he's doing is positing something, the language of which is Darwinian kind of conservatism versus metaphysical conservatism. Um, and I think just by stating that, there is something that gets eclipsed. It's that what we have is two differing metaphysics, 
We don't. This is this is just yeah. classical. This is just cla- classical theism in some sense of the word versus naturalism or materialism or physicalism. That's that's really what's going on here, and he's just clouding it in one particular interpretation of a naturalistic. Um, uh, a metaphysic that he would find um, agreeable towards his uh, conservative inclinations. Yeah, I think that's a really key point, Tom. I think that uh, sometimes these sometimes these folks uh, beg the question, and one of the ways they beg the question when they're advocating, you know, a uh, what they pr- what they present as the science versus your philosophy or whatever <laughs> is that uh, it's possible not to have a metaphysic. In other words, you have a metaphysic, Tom, but I don't. I'm just going with That's the science. Right. I'm just, you know, but no metaphysic is a metaphysic. It's the metaphysics of zero, and it has a number of implications for, well, ethics and politics and lots of other things. Uh, but I, I think that that that's right. I mean, it, it, there, there is no such thing as somebody who doesn't have a metaphysic. Uh, you can have, you can be a naturalist. That's your metaphysic, you know, but, um, what I want to do here is just read, uh, maybe two or three statements, um, that help us to understand what he's, uh, promoting. What is Darwinian conservatism, or at least, you know, what he says is Darwinian conservatism. So he says here, uh, yeah, on the first page, I have said that conservatives need Charles Darwin because our Darwinian science of he- human evolution supports the conservative view of human imperfectibility and the conservative commitment to ordered liberty as rooted in natural desires, customary traditions, and prudential judgments. For a society of ordered liberty to succeed, I have argued elsewhere, it must satisfy the desires of human nature as shaped by genetic evolution. It must have sustained by the customs of human history as shaped by cultural evolution, and it must be promoted by uh, the judgments of human reason as shaped by prudential deliberation. Now, there are a whole lot of things that he's importing here uh, that we should probably help to take apart, but that's what he's, that's what he says, you know, is, uh, you know, Darwinian conservatism. That's that, uh, he goes on to describe it in some other ways, uh, says, uh, as he's trying to elaborate on this, he says, contingencies of cultural history and individual temperament are so variable that we need prudence, uh, to judge what is best for particular societies and particular individuals in specific circumstances. No argument with that. A Darwinian conservatism can generalize, however, that ordered liberty will always require the moral, uh, uh, the moral order of uh, traditional morality, the social order of family life, the economic <laughs> order of private property, and the political order of limited government. A Darwinian science of evolution shows how such a conception of ordered liberty conforms to the evolved nature of human beings. Now, you know, again, there's a lot there that we can take apart. Uh, but basically what he just said is, is Darwin supports that there is an intrinsic moral, ethical, and teleological order. That's right. what he's trying to suggest. But he's, taking, he's taking classical, it's tra- classical grounding, and, and the infinite source of everything, which, which um, determines everything, and basically implanting it into the process of nature. Yeah, yeah. So let me go back here. To, I know, go ahead, Glenn. I, I know Marxists who would say that Darwinian evolution naturally leads you to Marxism. Right, right. You know, right. It, 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 prove your point. I mean, you can't just sort of assert that and have it hang there. You have to show how these things follow from Darwin, and they don't. Yeah. And, and yeah. One last one last quick before before I forget, I don't want to take your point, but if you noticed in his language too, is he's importing the the Platonic Augustinian notion of desires that need to be ordered in mm-hmm. order to flourish and and also be ordered towards some teleology, some, some yeah. something mm-hmm. almost a formal and final cause. Yeah, right. yeah. He, what, he, ta- what? he talks later about uh, being able to. Uh, to you know, think about you know ends from within an imminent uh, frame naturally. You know, uh, in terms of natural order or a natural you know sort of environment. But um, yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. But I cut you off, uh, Glenn. 
Yeah. Well, one of the things that we often forget when we're talking about Darwinism is it doesn't really have to do with interspecies competition. It has to do with competition within the species, mm. um, which raises a host of questions about the, you know, I mean, I understand you can make an argument that cooperation works better and all of that kind of thing. Okay, maybe. But it also sort of ignores Darwin's statements in um, The Descent of Man that, quote, the civilized races will inevitably exterminate the uncivilized races, meaning the whites are going to exterminate everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, um, there are lots of ways this, that... This is, this is explicit in Darwin. Right. So how does he get there from Darwin? Yeah, there are lots of ways that uh, contemporary thinkers kind of uh, filter 19th century thinkers. You know, we could say a lot of things that are really, well, you know, ugly that, uh, you know, were said by Nietzsche as well and other people in the 19th century that probably at the time people didn't even blink when they heard uh, mm-hmm. those statements. But now we look back on them and say, well, that was crazy. But uh, Well, except, except given the fact that competition occurs right. within the species, it is the logic. Darwin was just taking his stuff to the logical conclusion. Yeah, I agree with that for sure, right? Um, now, uh, let me just add a few more things or a few more uh, uh, statements from uh, this, uh, this author just to kind of round out, you know, uh, his argument. So he says uh, a little further along, uh, the Darwinian conservative assumes that we can fully understand human beings as products of natural ev- evolution so that we can base our moral and political reasoning on evolved human nature as we know it by common human experience. But many conservatives reject such a naturalistic view of human uh, beings as a threat to any healthy cultural order. They believe such scientific naturalism cannot support a religiously grounded cosmic teleology in which human social order is judged by how well it conforms to the sacred order of the creator. So now he's created his dichotomy. Okay, so on the one hand, you've got people who kind of reason up from observation and experience and based on observation and experience, can uh, identify human nature and evolved human nature. That's his term. And uh, then you have another group of people who uh, religiously ground a cosmic teleology, apparently uh, without any sort of other basis than perhaps uh, revelation to do that by. Um, and and so it's implied, I think, that there's a kind of a irrational, or he's, he, I think, implies that there's an irrationality, in a sense, to uh, this uh, religiously grounded cosmic teleology, or at least that it is uh, impossible to harmonize with uh, things that we experience and observe, uh, you know, in the course of, uh, you know, our, our lives and uh, as communities sort of are <clears throat> reflecting upon their, you know, their histories. And maybe there's a kind of parse, you know, kind of uh, thinking in terms of par- you know, parsimony in the sense that for him, I think his argument is we don't need to do a transcendently grounded right. ethic or moral order or that because Darwin can give us those things and we should be happy with that. We don't need to go to further explanations other than the natural to account for these things. Um, but of course, I mean, that is all fine and good if the first metaphysical issue is resolved, which is that naturalism itself is even intellectually plausible, much less a fairy tale, which I think it is, right. um, because you, 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 you really, all you, all, this is, these are your options. And I'm gonna just, you know, I'm gonna reduce a lot of metaphysics to something very simple. You either have a necessary being that has to have the classical attributes of God in order for there to be anything at all, or there's nothing. And what they try to do is basically just call that necessary being nature instead of God. And of course, they want to take the personal and the rational out or the supernatural because they're thinking we mean by supernatural that we're talking about a kind of supreme natural explanation. That's what they think. So we don't need a 
supernatural explanation if we have a natural explanation. But it never occurs to them that what classical metaphysics is talking about is not a supreme natural explanation or something, uh, uh, something explaining why they're... Um, Nature, it's, it's the whole other way around. What we're talking about is the issue of there being nature at all. <laughs> right. There is right. no nature unless it's the source that, that it is being itself. And everything about nature is that na the natural isn't being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right, I don't want to get right. into all the metaphysical layers, but that, that we're talking about the conditions for the possibility of there being nature at all. Nature isn't a self-explanatory metaphysical reality. And the only way it could be is if you import, which he sounds like he's trying to do and immanentize, the, the classical attributes of God as, as self, the self-existent one, which is the source of everything else. Um, and so there's a long debate, which I can't go into here, why nature can't be that and why it has to be a transcendent source. But so step one. So, so the reason metaphysical conservatives would reject a Darwinian explanation or natural Darwinian conservatism is that first metaphysical principle. It doesn't allow us to account for nature itself. Just yeah, he, positing nature and not characterizing why nature is, how it can be. See, what they do is they assume it is a given, but it's not something that tells us it can be in and of itself because it is being itself, because it's not. It's nature being. So anyway, I don't want to get into all that abstract stuff. But, but, but point but one. Is, yeah, I think yeah. this is the key point. I think that he misrepresents uh, the uh, nature of metaphysical reflection you know, what, what you've yeah. done here, Thomas, you've taken us back to sort of, okay, why is there an is? That's, that's yeah. the question. Why is there anything at all? Uh, and that's just not even on the radar with this guy. And in, in the follow-up uh, question to that then is the next one. He is assuming then, uh, he is assuming that, that when we talk about design and teleology, that we're thinking that it has to be something that is not intrinsic to, to the natural. And here's a, a great quote um, by uh, Dave Bentley Hart in his book, um, The Experience of God, which I, I think is before David went crazy. This was, this was his, you know, one of his best <laughs> yeah, books. Yeah, there's there's going to be the, you know, someday they'll look back and say there was the, the insane David Bentley Hart, and then there was the early David Bentley <laughs> Then there's the one who went, went over into the, <laughs> the abyss he fought so hard. But he or said that, they may go with the documentary hypothesis and say there were two David. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. I think that's the better. That's the better. But he, he talks about, he goes, when we're talking about design and nature, classical theological arguments, when they're talking about the order of the world, um, are not talking about little fragments of design. That God's creative power can be seen in the whole rational coherence of nature as a perfect whole. And so in that the universe was not simply the factitious product of a supreme intellect, but the unfolding of the omnipresent divine wisdom or logos, which is at the heart of all being. And so for Thomas Aquinas, God creates the order of nature by infusing things of the universe with the wonderful power of moving themselves towards determinate ends. So there is no dichotomy between transcendent source of all things and there being intrinsic um, teleology within kinds unfolding according to the determinative ends given to them by the creator. So he's, he's working with also an, a second false dichotomy between natural order and teleology and the need for it to, to be grounded in an imminent rather than transcendent source. Yeah, at the very end of his, his treatment, uh, you know, of the contrasts between, you know, a, a metaphysical conservatism and a Darwinian conservatism. He says this, a Darwinian science of human nature sustains the tradition of Aristotelian natural right and Thomistic natural law. You know, as I was reading the, the article, you know, I was, I was saying to myself all the way along, your whole uh, approach uh, fails to give any kind of uh, space 
to the Aristotelian and Thomistic ways of thinking about these things. And then at yeah. the very end, he slips that in. <laughs> I think it's yeah. maybe, maybe an afterthought or maybe, maybe, you know, maybe to cover himself. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, there's, there, there's another issue here as well. Um, uh, I've always argued that metaphysics has to be primary for philosophy, but I, my, my tendency is always to go to epistemology. And um, when you look at uh, uh, Plantinga, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, and, and actually I've, I've come up with my own version of this, you, you can't Sunshineism? Is this sunshineism? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah uh, no. Um, the, the, the point is you can't get to rationality from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah. There is yeah. no way, you, you, it's, it's another one of these you can't get there from here. Right, right. You know, so he's arguing that, that our rationality can look at the world and look at evolved human nature and all of that sort of thing and reach conclusions. But the fact of the matter is, there's no basis for trusting your rationality on anything right. if, uh, on an evolutionary model. Yeah, he actually says something that just sort of like made my hair stand up. That actually reflects your, you, you just noted here, Glenn. He says uh, at, at near the end of his uh, section on, um, let's see, what is it? Uh, metaphysics, evolution, and teleology. Near the end of that, he says, even if evolution by natural selection is not purposeful. Okay, so he concedes that's what evolution is, is actually, you know, on its own terms all about. It's, it's an, a, a purposeless... Uh, you know, sort of process, there is no telos. Then he says, it produces organic beings that are purposeful. Now, but that's the whole point. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. this, this inconsistency or this, so either human beings or actually any creature that's an agent is somehow a, uh, an anomaly in the larger order of things. In other words, yeah. something has, has, uh, something intelligent has emerged out of things that are, by their very nature, uninformed, unintelligent, uh, just stuff. Uh, or there's something wrong with the whole, this whole way of thinking about things. And this is what you know you're getting at, Tom. And this is what, of course, um, this whole approach that we've been talking about in terms of the in, the inherent rationality of the created of creation itself of reality uh, reflects. That's, that's right. Words, reality being being rational at all. Is, right. is another, is, is something, you know, naturalism is a guiding prejudice. That's all it is. It can't count for itself in its own terms. You need a metaphysical explanation for nature to be, period. That is moving beyond the, the, the natural. You are already offering an argument that cannot be tested, cannot be checked, cannot be right. understood right. by the senses. And so if you have that as your beginning point, which you can't get off the ground, the rest of it's nothing. Um, it's just a, it, it's it, the reason it's incoherent is because it's having to take everything from the classic Christian vision and just immanentize it with the magic wand that nature somehow just, you know, has all this potential. And there's no explanation for why there is anything at all, much less actuality, much less potential to be actualized. You know, yeah. so it, it really is fantasy thinking. And so, you know, uh, you know, it, it's just one of those. I mean, I'm glad. As a, as a Darwinian, he wants to admit what we've been saying all along, that there is a rational cosmos, that it is ordered morally, and, and that there are things that, that match pretty much what Genesis taught us, that there are um, orders of creation like family and procreation and, and labor and all these things that are for the sustaining and flourishing. Um, but uh, but, but just, just by merely reading them off the surface of nature as if that is, is going to explain all that ought, um, begs the question <laughs> um, on a well, Darwinian explanation, not on a, on a theistic one. Well, I think that one of the things that, you know, is assumed here is something that we actually want to challenge. Uh, and that is that uh, he's actually fully uh, represented uh, Darwinism. Um, so we've noted that there is a kind of an open-endedness to Darwinism. This whole idea that yeah. there is a, an evolved human nature that somehow is, has now arrived uh, means that <laughs> we can, uh, you know, reaffirm uh, conservative values uh, like, you know, the, the uh, 
you know, drive to procreate or uh, family life or, or what have you. He, he lists a number of different things. But is that actually so? I mean, I think the premise, and I, and I think I'm, pr I'm pretty, pretty solid ground when I say this, I think the premise um, not only of evolution but of, of uh, sort of mod modern thought is that there uh, is nothing really that um, informs, uh, you know, nature in any kind of normative sense uh, or any kind of moral sense. Therefore, you know, as the saying goes, all things are permitted. In other words, there, you know, if you could, if you could pull off mm -hmm. genocide, okay, if you can pull that off and your particular group, uh, you know, acquires an advantage in the, in, you know, in terms of, um, a particular environment and, and being able to control it and survive at the expense of another group, according to Darwinian is sort of the way Darwinism works. Um, there's no moral argument you can make against that except maybe on the grounds that, well, you know, we've lost uh, a part of the, uh, the gene pool <laughs> and, and maybe yeah. there's something, maybe there's something there that would give us an advantage down the road that we've lost because we've wiped out that group of people over there. Um, I'm yeah. not sure how you, how you, first of all, on Darwin's, you know, sort of the terms of Darwinism, you, you say that that is morally, um, I'm not saying that, that Darwinists would approve of what I just said. Sometimes I think people, um, yeah. uh, I think erroneously, uh, jump from this is what Darwin would permit to saying this is what Darwinians would approve of. Uh, I think that many, yeah. Dar many, many Darwinians, uh, many sort of supporters of Darwinian evolution actually would condemn things that Darwin, you know, Darwin's theory would permit, but they don't do it on the grounds of yeah. Well, Darwinism. you're starting, yeah, yeah, what you're starting to see a lot of it in this world that is that, you know, maybe at a couple generations ago would have been like the new atheist or and even Dawkins, what you're starting to see them is that recognize that while they think the whole religion thing is is nonsense, um, they now understand themselves as culturally influenced by Christianity. <laughs> and of course, maybe they have their own, like this kind of interpretation of that. But one of the things they want to do is find that, that the values that they're seeing, you know, with Islam and, and different places in the world are such that to them are so problematic, but on a, on a, on a strictly naturalistic interpretation, they can't argue for theirs being superior to the others because on that level, they're both expressions of nature unfolding, whatever yeah, I, its determination. I can't, I can't remember where I, where I heard this. I think I heard it attributed to, to Richard Dawkins. He more or less said, I'm, I'm a Christian atheist. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm it's a, like Doug, well, Douglas Murray, too. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, the continental atheists accuse the British and Amer Anglo-American atheists of being Christian atheists. That's been going on for years. <laughs> but at least, at least they're beginning to recognize it. Right, right. Now, the interesting <laughs> thing about this is if you, you look at someone like Jürgen Habermas, you know, and uh, premier public intellectual, kind of new left guy, um, he says explicitly that ideas like universal human rights and things like that originated only in a Judeo-Christian context. And he says, you know, to, to say otherwise is, as he describes it, postmodern nonsense. <laughs> However, he then makes the argument that, well, now that the Christians and Jews have come up with these ideas, as atheists, we can appropriate them, but we have to come up with our own reasons for them. Yeah, cultural appropriation. <laughs> done yet. Right, all, right. Yeah, all over the place going on there. And I mean, that, that's the... You know, back back to that point. If if there is no transcendent source on which all things depend, then rationality and reason, there's no reason to trust their deliverances as anything other than aimed towards whatever survival issue is at hand in a particular context. It's not aimed at the true yeah. nature of things. Um, and yeah, that's so, Politica's and, argument. Yeah, yeah. and. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. Yeah, planning uh, uses, it says basically if, if Darwinian evolution is correct, then the only thing that our brains are really designed for is survival. Yeah. And he uses the example of a guy named Paul. He 
He says, now Paul encounters a tiger in the jungle. <laughs> Paul runs away from the tiger and survives. Great. Now the question is, does it matter why he runs away from the tiger? Maybe he thinks seeing the tiger is the signal for the start of a foot race. <laughs> you know, maybe he wants to pet the tiger and knowing cats decides the best way to get the tiger to let him pet him is to run away from it. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's, he gives a whole host of absurd explanations, but the, but the point he makes is it doesn't matter. Right. As long as he runs away, right. he, he survives. And that's the only thing our brains are designed to do. So under these circumstances, how can you even trust rationality? Yeah, I th because all it is designed to do is to promote our survival. Yeah, I've, t I've used this argument with uh, people who have, uh, are, you know, inclined to naturalism. And the, the, my statement is that we are the most overcompensated creatures in the world because mm -hmm. there are things that we are interested in and things that we do that have very little to do with just simply sustaining our, our existences. You know, we, we, you know, art. Now you can you can take visual art and, and you, maybe you can do something with it to say you know along the lines of well you know some guys paint to impress women <laughs> so it's all about kind of a mating ritual kind of thing you know or a way to, <laughs> to get the girl um, but if you were to ask the artist what are you up to is that's not what he would say he's up to and there are a lot of other people would say there's more to it than that so even if that plays a role in you know. Uh, explaining why some guys are artists uh, doesn't uh, adequately, you know, sort of exhaust at least the the understanding of the person who's creating the art, and that I think is the thing that is most interesting about people. Uh, it's not just merely that we've figured out a lot of ways to in in you know inhabit environments that other creatures can't inhabit, but there's a lot more going on uh, with human beings that makes them interesting. And so either we, we, we uh, sort of reduce all that other stuff to, you know, uh, survival, or uh, we take it seriously and we say, okay, we're at least onto some things with this other stuff that we're into. And, uh, and it's not just simply diversion, you know, a sort of a ways to kind of keep ourselves occupied because we have nothing else to do. There's something about human beings that seem to be overcompensated if survival is the only thing uh, that, that explains our presence in the world. Anyway, I think uh, one of the, when, you know, so we've talked a little bit about what is Darwinian conservatism and we've pointed out some weaknesses uh, at a pretty fundamental level with it. Um, I think, too, it would be good to just quickly take a look at what he says is metaphysical conservatism, because I think he misrepresents it. Yeah. So he talks a little bit about Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk's a great guy. Uh, and uh, he uses Russell Kirk as a kind of the epitome of the metaphysical conservative. And uh, he says here uh, he's introducing, you know, Hayek and, con and contrasting uh, Hayek with Kirk. But this is what he has to say about Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk stated the metaphysical and religious version of conservatism in his 1953 book, The Conservative Mind. The first canon of conservative thought, he declared, was, quote, belief that a divine intent rules society as well as conscience, forging an eternal chain of right and duty, which links great and obscure living and dead, end of quote. That's a very Kirkian way of saying things, but anyway. <laughs> Consequently, quote, politics is the art of apprehending and applying the justice which is above nature, end of quote. Now, that uh, seems to sort of create this um, kind of antagonism between a metaphysical understanding of justice and the workings of nature. But that doesn't necessarily follow, and we've already talked a little bit about why. Um, of course, uh, People like Kirk uh, have been very critical of Darwinism. He quotes something that Kirk says about Darwinism. He says, those scientific theories or doctrines, those scientific doctrines, Darwinism chief among them, which have done so much to undermine the first principles of, the conservative, of a conservative order, end of quote. And that's just sort of an offhanded sort of parenthetical statement at the end of, a, of a, what probably is a paragraph. So it's sort of a throwaway, but it does express, I think, a... Uh, uh, a conviction that many conservatives have uh, 
And that conviction is that Darwinism is not a friend of conservatism. Uh, it, uh, and, it, and it's not because it undermines first principles, or at least is inconsistent with them or has a difficult time being reconciled to them. Um, anyway, he goes on to talk about Hayek and the British empiricist tradition, people like uh, Hume and, and Edmund Burke and so forth. But um, when it comes to this whole matter of sort of what would it mean for a society to be governed by a metaphysical understanding of uh, right and wrong, uh, he slips right into the, uh, you know, the theocratic, you know, the, the idea that we're looking to set up some kind of, I don't know, theocracy that, that you know, uh, is just going to grind everybody into the dirt um, but that I think that that point in particular is is first of all a red herring, a straw man. I mean, he's he's without arguing it. There is there is nothing whatsoever. If you have even an elementary understanding of the natural law tradition in classical theology, that a theocracy is the it, it, it's it's actually the the governing concepts and ideas that lead to things like individual rights and other things much right. further down the road. I, I, I really, I, I, <laughs> I think for him, if there is um, some infinite all-determining source of all things that is the principal reality, then um, that means somehow that this reality is the only reality that human beings are are to to be in conformity to not have relations with each other other than or anything else and therefore everything has to be basically theocratically organized um, being god-centered does not mean theocracy in these kind of domineering senses of the word so i yeah i don't i don't get how i don't get how he gets from 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 teleology metaphysics Classical metaphysics or transcendent metaphysics to to teleology to theocracy. Yeah, he he's uh, he quotes Remy Bragg here, and that's a that's a think I think uh, a mistake on his part. And Remy Bragg is misrepresented here because he just takes something out of context. You know, I've read a, you know a number of things that Remy Bragg has written, and uh, yeah. if you were to if the only thing that you knew that Remy Bragg had to say was what. He, you know how <laughs> how uh, you know he's presented here or represented here. You would not understand Remy Bragg. But anyway, he says here: if we want moral and political order guided by quote religiously informed cosmic teleology end of quote, how do we avoid theocratic extremism? That's the oh, you know that's that's the that's the rhetorical question, but it begs a lot of questions. And he goes on to say: not long ago, the Intercollegiate Review published an article by Remy Bragg with the title "Are Non-Theocratic Regimes Possible?" end of quote. His answer to the question was no. His reasoning was that in the history of the Western world, the ultimate standard for order was the law of God. And even in modern liberal democracies, the appeal to individual conscience implies that this is somehow the voice of God implanted in human beings. He suggests that moral and political order is impossible without the theocratic appeal to the law of God as the metaphysical standard for all human action. Now, in one sense, I would say, yeah, I, I agree with, with Remy Bragg here, but the way this is crafted, uh, the way this is sort of uh, slanted or sort of inserted into the larger argument gives you the impression that, you know, we've got some kind of, uh, well, Remy Bragg supports some kind of uh, Ayatollah, you know. or Yeah, well, that's, that was my point when he's using, the way he's using theocratic is, in, I think, in that sense. In the article, right, right, yeah, and and is that the way we should think about uh, theocracies? You know, our friend Doug Wilson uh, has uh, defended uh, theocratic uh, libertarianism <laughs> in the sense that you know he, he affirms uh, you know human moral agency and human freedom within a political order, but at the same time there is a larger uh, metaphysical understanding of the way the world works that help, informs government and how governments work with their citizens and how those governments um, justify their rule and, you know, even protect people who make choices that, you know, are out of accord with their own good and with the givens that they, they, they enjoy from God. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it, it, you know, one in one very strong sense. I mean, again, he's right there. I mean, if if God is the fundamental reality of all things, which uh, he is, then there is a God from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. So we, we're all in a theocratic uh, universe as creatures, dependent on God for all we are, our sustenance, and to our our the culmination of our natures. Um, it, I think the flip side of the coin, if there is no God, that's the terrifying thing. Um, or if the God, this God is indifferent, um, that's, those, those, are, those are terrifying. So it, it all depends on what one means by the nature of the one who is at the helm of all reality. Um, and so uh, let's put it this way. I am far more worried about an absolute conception of the state than I am some infinite so- benevolent source which is for the flourishing of the creation and it's, it's enjoying him eternally than I am a state that wants, uh, wants to force uh, uh, its, impose its will on us all in the name of uh, my own good, you know? Right, right. Yeah. We, you know, it, it, again, we have to deal ultimately here with the character of God. Um, yeah. You know, the, the assumption is that if there is a God, he is not interested in liberty. Yeah. Right. You know, just, just to be blunt about it. Um, if there is a God, what he wants is drones. Right. Yeah. You know, he does not want independent beings who, who are acting creatively and uh, making their own decisions within the boundaries of divine and natural law. In other words, liberty um, and so on. Uh, and, you know, what he's doing, as I think you said earlier that, that he sees God, uh, you know, in this um, uh, metaphysical conservatism, he sees God as being sort of the, the biggest thing in the universe. Right. Fundamentally, God is just like any other totalitarian. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, yeah, this is, and, and that's an utterly invalid assumption when it comes to historic Christianity. That's that's right. That's the shift from classic Christian conception of God and God's transcendent from the 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 shift in transcendent that led to a voluntaristic conception of God is basically the biggest tyrant around. So, right. in order for us to increase, this deity must decrease. Where he, it's not even fathom the idea that this has to do with our very being itself. This isn't about a will imposing of the same order as my will, but just bigger. Um, it's in him that we live and move and have our being, that we will and love and do all these things. Um, this, we, we are in the order of creatures participating in the delight and donation of, of being, which gives us life and determines our ends towards towards enjoying God's perfection. Um, so but that is a we don't he does he thinks that that is that is limiting us when it is actually the way in which we are free to enact what we've been created to be for the enjoyment of God's plenitude which is not limited by the creaturely. So it is the most utmost freedom because it's it's beyond the freedom of merely the 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 temporal and this worldly, it's a freedom open to the transcendent and 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 bliss itself, if you will. Yeah, if you want a, a kind of a, a, a fictional sort of a, a account, um, a story that kind of gives you some way of kind of getting into the sort of the frame of mind that we're criticizing here, mainly that you know we're just the, the people who. Uh, say I'm an atheist. I can't believe in the, the God that, that uh, you know I'm thinking about. You know our response is well, I wouldn't believe in the God you're thinking about either. Yeah, but if you're looking, right. if you're thinking about uh, you know where can you go to maybe see it presented? You know this sort of way of thinking presented in the form of a story, kind of like maybe you know you see with Chronicles of Narnia with C.S. Lewis and theism. It would be uh, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials series. Uh, I remember when yeah. that. Uh, first book in that series came out. I read it, was intrigued by it, was disturbed by certain undertones, and I, I kind of sensed where he was heading. But then when he got to book two, and then finally with book three, it was just obvious that the that that, that the theism the theism that he was attacking was a straw man. It doesn't actually 
yeah. um, you know, exist uh, in traditional Christianity in any way. But uh, in that particular story, uh, you know, what you have is uh, a being who is the first being who presumes that, that uh, uh, sort of presumes godhood because he's the first and then everybody else who comes after him uh, yeah. is in some sense enslaved by him. And now there's this kind of rebellion that's occurring in, in uh, you know, uh, you know, this, this world that Pullman describes. Well, you know, obviously if, if God really were just the first on the scene and, and uh, wasn't the source of everything, then that would be a, a valid critique, but that's not the God that we worship or proclaim. <laughs> so, that's right. you know, it's, he's what he's, what he, with Pullman and uh, many naturalists attack when they describe the Christian faith as not actually the God of the Christian faith. Yeah. They're thinking, they're thinking a being like other beings. They're not thinking being itself. That's it. Being so, which itself. all beings presuppose. And so right. that, that's really their flaw. They, they, they don't understand that when we're talking about the great I am, we're talking about I am-ness. <laughs> um, right. We're talking about the, the plenitude of being in which anything that is must participate in in order to be. Right. And, and there is, so you're either being itself or if you have being, you're getting it from being itself. Right now I am because of that, that being itself is, God is. Um, in, in, and this is why I am. I, I am not the infinite source of my life. I'm not the source of my life at this very moment. Um, I don't, because I am not being. I participate in it as I am, but I'll also go out of it as I'm not. But being doesn't go in and out. It is the isness of anything that is, whether it's nature, thought. Um, you know, I, I used to always laugh the metaphysical puzzle is that, you know, nothing cannot be. Because if mm -hmm. there is nothing, <laughs> nothing itself would have to participate in being in order to not be, which is, would, you know, so I think Jonathan Edwards actually, he, he had an argument, a similar, you know, similar along those lines. But, but that's one of the things that, you know, we, we, start, we start having to tell people because it's been forgotten in the theistic language of the West is, is that when we're talking and when the church was talking historically about the nature of God, we're dealing with be the plenitude of being, um, the infinite perfection of sheer delightful existence in all of its perfect fullness, has no lack in any sense of the word. And so that is the source um, of all things. Then the real question is, as I always say, is not do we need God as a super explanation for, for everything else, but why is there anything else if God is perfectly sheer plenitude of being and doesn't need it in order to be. And I think that's the Christian answer of creation ex nihilo and the delight God has in creating and in us sharing in relation to him in all things besides. Yep. Everything is gift. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, the so you just, you, you just uh, done a version of course of the ontological argument. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think, I think this is a particularly important thing for, you know, the grumblers and uh, other, uh, you know, people who listen to the podcast to be kind of onto because um, this kind of uh, this this approach that we see with uh, Larry and Arnhardt is is something that comes up in different places. For example, there are there are a number of people in the manosphere who argue for you know uh, the the differences between men and women uh, and a. In a, in a way that is intended to sort of justify traditional or conservative uh, uh, attitudes and practices with regard to the sexes based on a Darwinian uh, approach. Um, yeah. There are problems with, with that. You know, we can say, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're on our team when it comes to, you know, s you know these, these sexual differences. Uh, yeah. you know, we, we can agree uh you know, you know, to a degree, <laughs> but yeah, when, yeah. when we come to how, how do we justify these things and what are these, these things intended to, you know, what ends are they intended to serve? Well, that's where, uh, we part company with those guys. And I think it's important for people who are looking for some sort of, sort of basis for their convictions about the differences between men and women and the importance of, you know, 
family life and so forth, not to get sucked into a, Dar- a Darwinian uh, sort of a rationale for you know the things that they 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 believe in or, or want to support. That that's it. Yeah, it's an important thing. I, I think yeah, you see. I mean, you all of a sudden you see the as as wokeism, a, a new kind of religion, kind of enters into the public domain. You do see people like. Uh, new atheists like Sam Harris or uh, Eric, I think, Weinberg, and these different Darwinists um, starting to share many of the convictions um, that really are the outgrowth of, of Christianity. And, and they want to, they want to uh, bring their expertise of showing how that there, there's a certain empirical grounding of things, like you said, sexual differences, the significance, which, yes, I mean, I'm welcome to the, those insights as, as far as it goes. Um, but that's as far as it goes, um, and and they they really the minute they try to move that into into dimensions um, uh, beyond that is when I think they get much weaker, and and they're not able to sustain those arguments, um, you know, going on there. But I, I I do think it's kind of an it's an odd for people like myself who you know back back when I was going through school the big debates that tended to happen you know in the positivists during positivism was, was pretty much calling all of us theists a bunch of uh, freaks and, and morons. And then all of a sudden they're defending, you know, teleology and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> but just, just not, uh, they just don't want to give, give honor where honors do. <laughs> well, you know, it turns out that there, there are some of the new atheists who are saying, look, Christianity isn't true, but we need it. Yeah. I've seen, I've heard those. Well, Neal Ferguson. Yeah, Neal, and he's going to church. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, maybe the, the kind of the the silver aligning to the dark cloud of wokeism is that some of these guys will will discover that they can't have their cake and eat it too. They they've got to um, yeah. really uh, find a better basis for um, you know uh, defending and um, promoting the things that they really believe in. Um, you know, rationality, for example. Uh, yeah. What is the basis of rationality? If everything is just simply, you know, uh, you know, re- every, if everything can be reduced to power relationships, what is what what you know what can we say for rationality? Then it, rationality just becomes your way of sort of getting your way. You know, it's just a way to yeah. kind of trick people into going along with what you want. There's no actual yeah, it expands your entitlement. You know, yeah, there's, there's yeah. it doesn't really reflect reality. What, what you know, you're just you know looking out for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and you also have the the problem of free will. How does that fit in? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've run into atheists who basically argue that there's no such thing as free will, so you should decide to follow them. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, that's, the, the, yeah. The, the, the forces of determinism haven't brought me to that point in my life, so I can't. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and yeah. that's the thing. They're determined to think the way they do, ultimately. I mean, that's, that's you know, maybe they'll they have come up with creative ways of, of showing that you can use kind of um, some kind of human rationality to persuade others to see things a different way. But in the end, it's all about survival value for them. Yeah. And, and, and that begs the question till after the fact. I mean, how do you know? <laughs> um, you can think with all your best past, you know, experience that something yeah. is good and it turns out to be not good for the next set of circumstances. Um, and you can't know till after the fact. I mean, that's the thing. And, and I get, you know, I mean, I get this turn to the empirical because it is an important dimension that if we just move towards philosophical arguments, I mean, this was the point, and I, this is why I think in the article you hear him, him, he wants to move away from Plato and he wants to emphasize Aristotle and Thomas because they would at least be in, you know, hold to. But I, I think he has Plato fundamentally wrong, and I don't think yeah. that Aristotle or, I mean, I think Aristotle was developing a lot of Plato and took things his direction, and Thomas was appreciative of both. Um, right. And right. so uh, I, I think he, he just, he's very, he was very... Um, confused, I think, in, in a lot of positions. One last point while it's on my mind, but, you, you know, there's a lot of attraction to pit figures like Jordan Peterson, um, especially because he, he holds a lot of principles that, that really do push up against the, the you know, these movements that, that are, are kind of move us away from the empirical and, and uh, classic uh, Christianity. And one of the things that makes him attractive is he has space and room for with his uh, Jungian, um, you know, approach, 
for archetypes that that you know what we would he would see a doctrine more as an archetype that's way back in in our our darwinian development that is is some, something that you know is more than just uh is more than just kind of arbitrary i mean is significant but you know that that stuff gets fuzzy and shady too but a lot of christians kind of run right to it actually i believe uh out of the catholic world it just came a book theologically engaging positives and negatives in his i haven't reviewed it yet but i'd be curious to do because i do know there's a lot of people out in our listening audience who have found a lot of value in peterson but 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 not to run so much with all of those ideas because i think they do fundamentally um sever off a proper christian view of transcendence and and uh and then the yeah. getting the imminence the right way yeah we've had uh a few people encourage us to try to get Peterson on the show, and I have never mm. done anything with that. But, you know, I, the more I think about it, the more I think it would be uh, a worthwhile thing to do. I think that, uh, you know, we could have a good conversation with him, and I think that he would find us, uh, you know, worth his time. Uh, at least I hope he would. <laughs> anyway, we should, we should wrap up. Speaking of time, we should wrap up. We've gotten to that time. <laughs> anyway, uh, anything you want to say, Glenn, as we wrap up? Uh, now I think I said everything I need to okay. for this time. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. Um, we really do appreciate the people who support us. There are people out there that actually send us money every month. It's just amazing. And uh, we're glad for those folks. If you want to join them, there are different places you can do that. You can do that through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and that's a great way to do it. And uh, and I even think that there are others uh, other ways to do it, and uh, we we're glad for that. You can go directly to our website, make a donation there. Uh, you can go to Anchor uh, FM, do something there. We've got a few people who give to us regularly there. All that's great, and we're, and we're very glad for it. Also, uh, folks, give us good ratings. I mean, we've got a number of good ratings and a number of platforms, and we're very glad for that. And when you do that, uh, we're told by the people who are in the know that that helps in terms of getting the word out about the show. So uh, thank you to those who've done that already. And if you've been thinking you'd like to do that, well, why delay any longer? Do it today. Go right online and give us five stars or 25 camels or whatever it is that they use to, to measure goodness on your platform. Anyway, well, that's it for now. Thanks a lot for listening to the podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.